what if there were a fountain of youth pill that could add decades to your life? Would you take it? Unlocking the Fountain is a podcast about the mysteries of aging and the scientific quest to slow, stop, or even reverse it. When do you think we're going to have the first 150-year-old? I think that person's already alive. Unlocking the Fountain. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Like, that's a lot to take in. Like, even growing up, I'm like, holy man, like, I lost one side of my family. You know? One side. Today's story starts with a crime. It happened over 50 years ago in Buffalo Narrows, Saskatchewan. But this isn't a cold case. We know what happened and who did it, and that that person went to prison. The case was solved. But that doesn't mean it's over. Not for Connie Woods and her sister, Cynthia Laliberde, the only surviving members of the Peterson family. I'm Macy Rowe, and this is The Doc Project. In the wake of violence, we expect certain things. For the survivors, there will be outpourings of grief. We expect answers, maybe even closure. We expect help. But what happens when the survivors feel forgotten? Heads up, this episode deals with violence. Bridget Yard from CBC Saskatoon will take it from here. I just kind of keep to myself. Mm -hmm. Me too. I really keep to myself. Mm -hmm. I'm sitting at a round kitchen table in the middle of Cynthia Liberde's house. She lives in a small northern village in Saskatchewan called Buffalo Narrows. She was born here, says she'll stay here forever. Her sister, Connie Woods, sits right beside her. She's pulled her chair close to her sister, so they're almost touching. They're shaking. For some reason, they've decided to let me in, to talk about the tragedy and what happened afterwards. This story is graphic, and it needs to be to understand what these women went through when they were just little girls. They were only 10 and 11, and they became orphans in an instant. 51 years ago, on January 30th, 1969, their mother, father, four of their siblings, and a family friend were murdered with an axe. They were all found bloodied in their beds. Out of the family in the house, only one little boy, Donnie, survived. Connie, the older sister, and Cynthia, only a year younger, hadn't been home that night. They'd been staying at their grandmother's house, a chance sleepover that probably saved their lives. The family's killer was also from Buffalo Narrows, a neighbor who lived just down the road with his mother. As 19-year-old Frederick McCallum was sent to a psychiatric facility for his crimes, Donnie, Connie, and Cynthia were left to take care of themselves. Cynthia got counseling soon after the murders, but only one session. It lasted an hour. I don't know, I can't even explain it. I was taken to some counseling for one afternoon. I remember that. But that was it. Did it help you? No. 
wasn't even worth it. I don't even know why they bothered. Mm-hmm. It's just like when they took me in for this counseling, they all they did was show me pictures and every picture I said to them, it was always about somebody being killed. It was all about blood and murder. Cynthia starts to putter around the kitchen. She loves to cook, and she even serves burgers and fries from her big refurbished bus in the summertime. I have a food bus out here. (laughs) I make burgers and uh, chicken melts, onion rings, fries, poutine. They say her chicken melts are legendary. Oh yeah, they like my food bus. (laughs) Today, it's like she needs something to do with her hands, something else to focus on. Connie and Cynthia were never told where their family's killer was imprisoned. They didn't even know when he was in court. And they never received financial support. They had to work as young teenagers just to have something to eat. Most of the townsfolk knew what happened to their family, but Connie and Cynthia say no one ever reached out to them. In the aftermath, Connie and Cynthia went to live with their grandmother, the one they had been staying with when the murders took place. They had no other family. But after they had settled in, social services came knocking at the door. They decided to take us to Saskatoon. They were going to put us in a, what do you call that? In a foster home. In a foster home. We didn't even know who they were. We were set under, like they put us uh, in the basement. That's where we sat, me and my sister. And we were trying to get home. Like we were actually to the point where we were going to run away. They were in Saskatoon for one night. They were scared and confused. They didn't understand why they'd been taken away from the only adult left in their family. In retrospect, they have suspicions as to what was happening. It was the 60s. Connie and Cynthia are Indigenous, and the foster family they were going to be placed with was white. Somehow, they convinced someone to bring them home to Buffalo Narrows, and there they were reunited with their grandmother. They lived with her for four years until she got sick and couldn't take care of them anymore. But this time, with nobody left to take care of them, social services didn't come. So in their early teens, they started couch surfing, together and separately. Buffalo Narrows is a small town. It's hard to make a life there. Many people used to work at the fish plant, but unless you worked there, it was tough to find a good job. And Connie and Cynthia always felt ostracized, as if the tragedy marked them. Their younger brother, Donnie, was shuffled from home to home. His sisters didn't know where he was half the time. Connie and Cynthia found themselves profoundly alone and barely scraping by. What did I do? More or less like we had to... Oh, it's so... Yeah, it's like... Connie had to quit school at 12, just a year after the tragedy. They had no stable place to live, and she had no choice. They tell me about the difficult jobs and the long hours they worked. I was a janitor. We were janitors, both me and her. And then uh, I went to construction work. As adults, when they couldn't find work, they were able to receive welfare. But the money never went far. And they allude to jobs they've had that they don't want to discuss. I did things that 
They just say they did whatever they could to survive. Neither of them had a real home until they were married. They say marriage was a saving grace for both of them. Finally, they weren't on their own. Sitting around the table, it's clear Connie and Cynthia don't have much money. It's not that their homes aren't filled with furniture and food and family, and they still spoil their grandchildren. But they live paycheck to paycheck, and often they have a hard time paying the bills. Connie and Cynthia still grieve the loss of their parents and siblings. They're still traumatized 51 years later. It's the fear that really got me. Bridget, I couldn't even sleep. Like, on, on our house, our window ledges were busted. That's how I made sure that they were locked. But in me, they weren't. Connie would lock the windows, but she could never trust they were really locked. She'd go back, and she'd check, and check again. And each time, she turned the lock tighter until it would break. She kept the curtains closed. Connie and Cynthia can be untrusting of others, and they've never had a family behind them to give them reassurance or to comfort them. What would Cynthia, what would you have liked to see done for you in terms of support? What would you have wanted throughout your life? Uh, I don't know. I just don't even have an answer for that. Mom and dad. <laughs> yeah, I'm a, my mom and dad and brothers and sisters, yeah. I would give anything to have them, but, had them with me growing up. Yeah. It's never going to happen. The sisters want mental health support, financial aid. They want the world to remember what happened to their family. Every time we see somebody, they're going to do this for us. They're going to seek counseling for us, or they're going to get us to go to this place, but nothing ever panned out like the way they said they would. They'd have a meeting with us, but then they'd forget about us like we never existed. In Buffalo Narrows, access to health care is limited. There's a fly-in psychiatrist who comes once in a while, and there's a counselor who serves the small town, but she's from the community, and it's hard to tell your neighbor all of your business. It's help Connie says she really could have used. She doesn't trust her emotions. She never had anyone to teach her. I still don't know how to love someone. I still... What is love? Because you never had your parents to show you. and That's the only way I thought I'd understand was to be scared. I was scared to let them go. My kids, I couldn't even let them go anywhere to sleep. She's tough on that part. Protective? Well, I am. I love my kids. and But I let them, like with her, she kind of just doesn't want to let them go. Whereas I let mine go. For some reason, it all affected Connie more than it did Cynthia. The family is open about Connie's protectiveness. She would do anything to keep her children and her sister from getting hurt even as adults. Well, I understand that you were quite protective of your sister too, right? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. oh yeah. Even when she got into that accident where my brother got killed, no matter how tired I was, if they went out to have fun, I'd go there. Mm -hmm. I'd wait, even if I was tired. The brother Connie mentions who was killed in that accident, that was Donnie. That's the reason he isn't here sitting around the table with his sisters. 
It's another part of this story that is so troubling. Donnie was the little boy who survived in that house when the family was massacred. And like his sisters, the murders shattered his life. People described Donnie as troubled. Eventually, he attended Ranch Airlow's Wilderness Challenge Program, an infamous program for troubled boys in Saskatchewan. APTN reporter Christopher Reed took a deep dive into the history of the camp back in 2018. Well, the men that I've spoken to allege that this, is, this was a place not of kindness, uh, not a place where there was any kind of counseling going on. It was, uh, for them, it was a place of, of cruelty. When any kind of transgression happened, when uh, a boy did something that was uh, not correct, there, there was a punishment. One of the camp's founders said at the Royal Commission that if a boy didn't help get firewood, he wouldn't be allowed to eat that night. Escapees were stripped once they were caught. They were beaten and forced to dig a pit, and some of them were kept awake for 50 hours at a time. Chris's report mentions Donnie Peterson. Donnie is, is the guy who came forward and, and stood up and said, something wrong is, is going on here. I think it's important to not forget Donnie Peterson and to not forget this story in general, because there was a royal commission that came out in 1977 and said that these boys were exaggerating and lying, and uh, the the judge in, in charge of the commission actually recommended that the camp reopen and be restarted again because he thought it was a good thing that they were doing. So it's important to rem- remember that guys like Donnie, when they, when they speak out about something, we should probably listen to them. Donnie's life did not improve after the camp. By adulthood, he was committing crimes in order to get sent to Prince Albert Penitentiary. That's where he thought Frederick McCallum, his family's killer, was an inmate. And he wanted to meet him face to face. He was sent to the pen twice, but he never encountered McCallum. Then, in 1994, Donnie died suddenly in an accident. His vehicle was stopped on the side of a dirt road. He got out and was speaking to a friend in the back when a car plowed into him. Cynthia was there too, and she was badly injured. She had to stay in the hospital for weeks. Connie was beside herself, convinced that the only family she knew would disappear. And it started a pattern of overprotective behavior that would end up causing tension between the sisters. Whenever Cynthia went out, Connie watched. She would accompany her sister and wait outside until Cynthia went home. Cynthia wanted to live her life. And Connie wanted to protect it. Like, you know, that they needed me and that I had someone to hang on to, you know, love them, thinking, okay, they love me. She still wants to protect her sister, her whole family. And Cynthia resists. You can see and feel the tension. When Connie cries throughout our conversation, Cynthia doesn't comfort her. They want a better relationship as sisters, a relationship that has been damaged by everything they've gone through. I want me and my sister to be close, and we seem to can't do it. She's all I have. Why do you think you guys can't do it? We don't know how. What do you think? What do you say about that? I agree. 
Connie's daughters know their mother and their auntie need help. They've known since they were children. Jamie McCallum, a different McCallum than the killer, and Rhoda Woods grew up in a world with fear always lurking in the shadows. Here's Jamie. Because of my mom's how my, scared my mom was of, of losing her family and her brothers and sisters and all that, you know, and she must have felt alone. Like she didn't talk too much about it until we got a little bit older. And then she started bringing up stuff. She started talking and, you know, like, and you can tell, like, how, how scared she was because of the things she did. When we were little kids, we wouldn't, wouldn't be able to go do sleepovers or um, late at night, like, we couldn't play outside. We couldn't hang with friends too much. Jamie remembers the locked windows and doors and the extreme lengths her mother went to protect them from the man who murdered their aunties and uncles. AC here. Coming up, what the family do know about the man who killed their relatives and the answers they're still waiting for. From CBC Podcasts and The Fifth Estate, Brainwashed is a multi-part investigation into the CIA's experiments in mind control. From the Cold War and MKUltra to the so-called War on Terror, we learn about a psychiatrist who used his patients as human guinea pigs and what happens when the military and medicine collide. Listen to Brainwashed on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. We've heard stories that he has been here in town. We have heard a bunch of stuff that he is around. They know he was in an institution for the criminally insane after he was arrested. But later, he was deemed mentally fit and moved to the federal penitentiary in Prince Albert. Newspaper reports say he was then sent to Ontario to another institute for the criminally insane in Penetanguishene. There are rumors he got out in the 1990s. People tell them they've seen him every once in a while. They're convinced that Frederick McCallum has been to his mother's house regularly in the last decade or so. Whether or not he has returned to Buffalo Narrows, I haven't found anything definitive. The name McCallum is everywhere in town. That's why Jamie's last name is the same as the man who murdered her relatives. I went through obituaries in Ontario and Saskatchewan, trying to find people he might be related to. There were a few men on Facebook I thought might be him, and then I thought I found his profile, but he blocked me after I told him what I was looking for. When Mrs. McCallum died recently, it was locked doors and closed blinds all over again. People who know the family told Connie and Cynthia that Frederick was in town. Which is very scary to see your parent go through the things they do. We're locking our doors, we're... Not leaving the house. Lockdown? Lockdown. It went beyond lockdown. When the Peterson sisters were really scared, they'd pack up the kids and head west, or east, or south. It didn't really matter. They just needed to get away for a few days or so, until all that fear subsided. It's sad. Really sad how we had to jump up and leave and do this and that when... Like, hide away. Like, why wouldn't we have to hide? You know, as I got older, I'd wonder, why are we hiding? Is he going to hurt us, you know? 
And I think that's the most that has scared both of them, was because he said he wasn't finished. She's right. He did. Newspaper reports from the Times say that McCallum expressed regret that he didn't kill the whole family. Some say he uttered the threat when he was arrested, and others say it was at the courthouse. Word got back to the sisters. Usually, victims of violent crimes are kept informed. They're told when the perpetrator is up for parole or when they're being released. I reached out to several governmental departments in Saskatchewan, justice, victim services, health, social services, to find out anything I could about their case, why they weren't given any updates, why they had to find out what they could through newspapers and town gossip. I was sent a joint statement offering condolences to the sisters and outlining supports available to victims of violent crimes today, but they wouldn't comment on the sisters' situation, citing privacy. So why do Connie and Cynthia stay in Buffalo Narrows? (laughs) Too broke to move. I don't like it here. I don't. I really don't. There's bad memories. and Only towards my family, that's what I have. Because I really don't have anywhere else to go, and this is where my husband works and my daughters work. It's hard to know what should have happened, what exactly the system should have done. Some of it feels intuitive. Keep the girls with whatever living family they have for as long as possible. Make sure they have enough to eat, that they can stay in school, get mental health support. But none of that happened. What makes it all the more painful is when they compare their experience to that of the victims of another violent crime that took place two years before the Peterson Massacre. It happened only 400 kilometers south of Buffalo Narrows. It's still considered Canada's worst random mass murder. Today is its ominous anniversary. A man entered a home in Shell Lake, Saskatchewan, but with a rifle. An entire family died that night, and in a strange coincidence, they were also called the Petersons, with a T instead of a D. Victor Hoffman murdered nine members of the Peterson family. In the Shell Lake massacre, nine people died. One little girl survived. But this is where the similarities end. In Shell Lake, the girl was immediately taken into her uncle's care before she was settled with her 19-year-old sister. She was able to grow up with siblings, her sister's children, in a loving and stable environment. Newspaper reports from the time describe how, straight after the tragedy, there was an outpouring of community grief and support, and the little girl was showered with gifts and well wishes. And there's something else. It's hard to tell how relevant it is, but it's equally unreasonable to overlook. This Peterson family was white. Connie's daughters, Jamie and Rhoda, have heard that the survivor of the Shell Lake Massacre received better treatment than their mother and their aunt. I think something would have been done. They'd never have to live like that. You know, like the Shell Lake. You know, she must have been taken care of. Now we can't even ask her. She recently passed away in June. I just found out. I was. We were going to talk to her, like, see what her, but she never answered, whatever. And people know what happened there. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that's what I mean. And 
I don't know. To this day, what happened at Shell Lake still gets a lot of attention through anniversary coverage, true crime podcasts, interviews with the survivor while she was living. Today is its ominous anniversary. The tragedy at Buffalo Narrows never generated that kind of interest. My name's Shaylee Gardner. My mom is Rhoda Woods and my grandma is Connie Woods. Shaylee's mother, Rhoda, and her grandmother, Connie, were secretive about what happened to the rest of the family. They wanted to keep the pain to themselves. Eventually, though, the story got back to Shaylee, despite their efforts. The way she found out about that January night in 1969 was from another kid at school. I remember being on the playground and somebody mentioning it to me. And I'm thinking, I wonder who those people are. And I went home and asked my grandma, and I just remember her crying. And then I learned from then. I just remember feeling cold, like a cold spell come over me, learning that at such a young age and how I learned of it. Or, you know, I didn't get to hear it right from them. I just remember thinking, you know, this is stuff that happens on TV. You know, it doesn't happen to our family. Shaylee got married a few years ago. In every Peterson home I visited, her smile beams from picture frames. She grew up in a loving family, got a good job, and married her best friend. I remember growing up, my papa and mama always said, you know, get a job, do good, get married, have a family. You know, it was always that way for me. Always. It never, I don't know, like, to go out of that cycle, I think I would have been heartbroken with myself. So I bought a house, got married, and now hopefully I'll have kids. She's not sure yet how she will tell her future children about their family's past, but she's determined to break the cycle of grief and trauma that has weighed them all down for 51 years. Connie and Cynthia have always wanted a memorial for their family, maybe a little spot with a plaque near the lake where they used to play with their brothers and sisters. But the sisters are still waiting for an acknowledgement from the town. And Connie and Cynthia's daughters are still desperate for information, even all these years later. There are no perfect victims. Some people thrive and others stay broken. Trauma is complicated and surprising and lingering. There's no perfect end to the story either. But the Peterson women want their story to be told. Connie and Cynthia's lives have been hard, too hard, but they survived, and each new generation has found a way to deal with the trauma. For Shaylee, the youngest, she looks to the past, to her great-grandmother, Bernadette, who was murdered half a century ago. She never met her, but she looks to her for strength. Sometimes I'll sit and look at her picture and think, what would have been like if she was around? Would she... Could I take her to the city? Could I, you know, go sit at her house and lay on her couch or crawl into bed and have a nap with her? I just know she was tall and she had black hair and, you know, I feel safe knowing that they're around, you know, spiritually. And like, there's times where, I don't know, some things that just happen to me that aren't easy to explain. And I'm like, okay, that's them. They're giving me that sign. Shaylee, come on, 
Shaylee, keep going. That doc was produced by Bridget Yard. It was edited by Kent Hoffman, Allison Cook, and me. We have photos of Connie and Cynthia, including this one of them together as little girls. It is one of the few family photos they have from their childhood. You can see that on our website. We are at cbc.ca slash docproject. The Doc Project is produced by Kent Hoffman, Allison Cook, and me. Althea Manassan is our digital producer. Our senior producer is Julia Poggle. I'm AC Rowe. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.